Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Assembly Experts panel recording with our Midwest experts. I'd like to first introduce Joe Campbell, Senior Marketing Manager at Universal Robots. He will be moderating this panel discussion today. Joe? Thank you. Thank you, Danielle. We've got uh, three of our best and brightest with us today to talk about assembly applications with collaborative robots. Uh, guys, why don't you give us a quick background on yourselves. Capper, why don't you go first? Yeah, thanks, Joe. Dave Kaplani here. I am the regional key account manager, uh, U.S. Canada automotive sector. I've been in the industry about 35 years, both from a systems integration standpoint um, and then more so on the component side of robot sales and autonomous vehicles. Uh, I've been here Universal for three years, and it's been quite the, uh, the ride to date. And uh, full disclosure, uh, Dave and I share uh, a past together in the uh, assembly robot business. So we're looking forward to this. Uh, Joe Millette, why don't you give us a quick rundown? Thanks, Joe. Um, I'm Joe Millette. I'm the business development manager at Universal Robots based in Minnesota. Uh, I cover Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the Dakotas. Um, I've spent about eight years in the industrial automation field. Um, and I have just over two years now with Universal Robots and working with collaborative robots and collaborative robotic applications. Excellent. And last but not least, Brian. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on here. My name is Brian Connor. Uh, I'm a channel development manager for Universal Robots, covering uh, nine states in the Midwest region here. I've uh, spent about 14 years in the industrial automation industry in a couple different capacities uh, and really been involved with collaborative robotics for the last uh, three years from the end of our tooling side and also now you know here at uh, Universal Robots for a couple of years. So excited to be here today. Excellent. This is uh, This is a good group. Uh, let's kick it off with a couple uh, kind of core topics. Um, we all know that, you know, the robot business is kind of built upon the machine tending side of life, and that's certainly been the case for Universal. Uh, machine tending is still about 50% of our volume. However, we're seeing more and more assembly applications. Uh, could you guys kind of walk through and give, give the uh, listeners an idea of what makes a good assembly application for a cobot? Capper, why don't you kick it off? Sure. Um, so, you know, the uh, some of the key points that, um, for instance, when I'm looking at any application is uh, I always start with the pay, uh, the uh, cycle time. Um, a lot of people go down this uh, rabbit hole of I need to pick and place this thing or put these together and I need to do 60 a minute and, you know, the variance and what have you. So, I always like to bring to the table first and foremost is what is the rate? What does that process time look like? Second is, you know, what is the overall uh, tooling uh, required? What auxiliary tooling may or may not be required? And then and I know we'll touch on it is um, who's going to do this? Is this something that you have internal capability with or, something or someone from the outside. So those are usually my three key points. Excellent. Brian, what about you? Similar? 
Yeah, definitely similar. I, I, I like where, uh, you know, how Dave kind of touched on a couple of the application specific things there to begin with. And uh, from my point of view, kind of, you know, obviously I've worked with a lot of end users on this. I've been into a lot of plants, seen a lot of applications, but uh, I really like Dave's third point uh, first and foremost there. And that, that's really more related to the project execution. It's just paramount to uh, figure out if you're going to have that internal product champion before you start digging too deep into it or if you're going to go to the outside. It's it's one of those things that I've seen uh, over and over, and I know Dave, Joe, Joe, all of you guys can attest to this, is you know if you don't lay out what the scope of the project is, you don't lay out how you're going to go about executing it, um, you know, it's going to be much more difficult to get, uh, you know, to hit the ground running with this. So, um you know, while I completely agree with Dave on those first couple points, those are huge. Um, you know, project execution is where I would spend most of my upfront discussions before tackling the application. Joe, what do you see from your customers? Are you seeing a lot of DIY or are most of them bringing in integrators or pretty, pretty fair mix? I think it's a pretty, pretty fair mix. And I'll even go touch on the DIY customers. Um, might not even handle 100% of the implementation and installation on their own. They'll they'll handle a majority of it, but sometimes they'll still bring in that that third party, whether it's an integrator, machine builder, programmer, to maybe assist them with parts of the process that are a little more compl- complex and complicated. Um, you know, on the on the DIY front, I think what we're seeing. For my end customers, are the 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 challenging part of that application is not necessarily programming the robot. You know, our our robots provide a pretty user friendly, easy to program environment for people. But it's the as Dave touched on the end of arm tool, the auxiliary components, and the process development where they'll make sure to bring in um, an experienced third party uh, to assist them with that. What about parts feeding? I mean, for my uh, for my checkered past, that was always the the headache is uh, getting the parts queued up and fed properly. Uh, what are you seeing in in, uh, in that side of the application space, Dave? So the um, it, what's really funny, Joe, and this probably touches on our background when you know when you saw some of the first vision guidance, and then you saw things back again in our past of flexible part feeding in that it seems like a lot of that technology is starting to come back again uh, with more and more people looking to do that. Um, You know, it's from the perspective of a collaborative robot, you know, we're seeing a lot of either kitted components and or parts that are already, um, you know, in some sort of pallet or fixturing, um, you know, back to that flexible feeding, you know, you are, we've released our Actinav uh, for 3D bin picking. It's huge. It's starting to, you know, sometimes you got to wonder if some of that technology, yeah, was, you know, before it's time, right? And now it's this huge wave where everybody's just coming into it, so... Yeah, for the listeners who may not uh, who may not be aware, Actinav is uh, is a unique solution. It it allows uh, random bin picking and placement of parts into precision fixtures, whether it's a machine process or a assembly machine or injection molding machine. Um, and that's good. But what's really good is with a very very low level of programming, uh, very fast to deploy. 
uh, yeah, that's a great reminder. How often do you guys see bowl feeders? That used to be the standard in the universe. That's how you got small parts fed into a cell. You still see bowl feeders every place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're still seeing that. We know there's uh, some good UR Plus partners out there, too, that, that manufacture the bowl feeders. Um, but, you know, your your issue, only issue, I would say, with bowl feeders, right, is that they're not quite as flexible as other types of parts feeding. So uh, for some of those uh, types of customers that might have six, eight, ten different sizes of parts, uh, you become a little more limited uh, in that sense. But they're certainly something that I'm still seeing quite a bit, but starting to see, uh, as David pointed out, too, the, uh, the flexible feeders as well uh, with vibratory tables and things like that to kind of separate the parts and then using, you know, 2D cameras to locate the parts above that and go. It might add a little bit on the cycle times, but it's becoming a, a good way to handle a wide variety of parts. Uh, and especially with the capabilities within the uh, Cobot controller itself to handle all the various inputs and outputs, it's it's not a problem to tie everything together and go that route. So um, still seeing bowl feeders, but uh, more often seeing uh, other types of uh, parts feeding and conveyance systems to to bring those parts over to the Cobot to start the process of assembly. Well, that's well, that's a really good point. Sorry, Joe, I just wanted to no, go right branch ahead. off go of right that. Um, I, I'm also seeing you know, bowl feeders still out there at, at, in, on plant floors. Um, but I think to your point, when we're looking at a collaborative application, oftentimes we, we are looking at something more flexible. And I, I think that goes back to maybe why we're even starting that conversation with the manufacturer is they want something that is flexible and they know that a universe robot solution provides that flexibility from the, the robot side of the project. And that really forces us to, find more flexible ways to present the parts where if, you know, if it was some, a high volume yeah. run, they probably would run with a bowl feeder because they don't, there's no need to um, have changeover for the parts. They're running the same thing all day, every day. They're looking at us because they want a flexible solution. It forces us to look for a flexible part presentation. Well, you know, we've been so successful in the high mix, low volume um, industries, whether it's, you know, contract machining or packaging or welding or anything. Uh, do you still see the same uh, dynamic in assembly where we're actually in higher mix, lower volume situations? I, I think it's, it's a hockey stick effect right now. Um, I think people are starting to look at that more and more right now. Um, you know, we talk about the early adopters of just, collaborative robots and I think we're beyond that now which I think is opening those other segments or those other customers that um, that you're talking about Joe and w one other point to the bull feed is you know we what makes a good application what the one thing you can say about a bull feeder is that if I need a part every half a second quarter second in this orientation it's going to be there so you know, again, it's back to evaluating what the customer is trying to do and uh, going from there. Good. Um, how often do you guys see our cobots being deployed side by side in an assembly process with skilled human operators? Is that routine and regular? I would say yes. Um, I mean, one a recent assembly one that I was uh, was working on with a customer uh, out here in Illinois was uh, 
basically using the the cobot to do some of the screw driving and you know they were able to dial in through the uh you know certain uh torque settings with the uh end of arm tooling um but then there was actually um wire harnesses and some cabling that had to be put into this same uh product that was being manufactured um so with that being a little more difficult uh to to use cobots to handle flexible parts like um like wiring or cable harnesses and um, you know, it, it was something where they were able to set up a station where it kind of moved down a conveyor line. The cobalt was able to start, and then right next to it, the person was was there to to do the more intricate part of the process. So it's definitely something where they were able to get it to work side by side and use some of those onboard safety features of the cobot itself to set up safety planes and, and area scanners to make sure that the robot wasn't entering the human's workspace but didn't need that dedicated hard guarding around it to to make it work. So it was something that for this particular manufacturer was was exactly what they needed because they didn't have the space to introduce something that would be required of traditional automation. Good. That's a good one. Just a, a funny little note on that. Almost every application that I've seen where that scenario exists, before the first day of deployment is over, that operator has given the robot a name. Bingo. You're right. <laughs> yes. yes. That is common. Yeah. It's their new coworker, right? I mean, it's, it, it, he's there to help. 99.9% that cobot has a name. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. That's a well, great way I, to make it feel like part of the team, right? I mean, it's, it, it yeah. shouldn't scare uh, the other workers away, right? They're there to, they're there to help out and it's really helping the plant to, to move forward with their, with their initiatives. And that has historically been a struggle for, uh, for the traditional side of automation, but I agree with you. It's a very different play here on the collaborative side. Yeah, and um, I guess that 0.1%, Dave, you should probably recommend to them to make sure to name the, the cobot and make them part of the team, right? Yeah. If you haven't named them yet, you need to. Well, the deploy, again, I don't want to take up all the airtime here, but one of our customers in Ohio started naming each robot based on a president, starting with the very first. And I think they're up to the 20th or 25th president. And when asked, what are you going to do when you get past living president or standing president? They said they're going to start with comic heroes. Comic <laughs> heroes. Okay. So not going off of like robots that might be in movies or, or television shows no. or anything. You're just going to go straight to comic heroes and have Superman and Batman and all those guys. That's what they said. Comic heroes. I think that's easier. <laughs> I think okay. it's absolutely not going to have like Wally and and all the other types of robots that have been made famous recently, R two D two and C three PO and all those guys. We can tell Brian's got a pastime here. He's uh, apparently a movie <laughs> <Yes>. guy. <laughs> right. Right. So we keep going. It's going to turn into who can name the most uh, movie back, robots. Back to, back to the robot business. Back to the robot business. Sorry about that. Um, I digress. Continue, Joe. Uh, Dave, you opened up by talking a little bit about risk factors. Uh, you talked about cycle time being a risk factor. Um, what else do we see as risk factors that sometimes will have the tendency to pull an application uh, kind of on the bad side of the of the uh, ledger? Well, for any collaborative robot people, you know, I think it's our job to really educate them on what it means to be a collaborative robot. Um, in other words, you know, we're always hit with payload, right? We want you to, to go bigger and faster 
And I don't know about you, but, you know, getting hit even at a slow speed with 50 kg payload doesn't seem to be what I'd like to do on a regular basis. So Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really close to understanding, you know, the payload requirement, which is usually the product plus tooling. Because again, there's factors contributing to the whole thing of being a collaborative robot. You know, you're stopping time, you're stopping distance. Um, it, it truly is, Joe, again, back to our history, you know, when we got into the to the industry, there was one set of rules that we were all trying to play by, um, and that had to do with, with guarding and sensors and things that... And now we're taking all those barriers away or trying to do that. And so now we got to start that education again with the mm-hmm. customer. What makes a good application? What doesn't? And payload cycle time to me are key factors. You know, the, um, in fact, I'll, I'll put this plug in. Danielle is going to give us, uh, give the listeners an email address uh, at the end of this discussion. Um, and, if you'd like, you can email and ask for a copy of our um, our application scorecard, which is basically a risk assessment tool. Uh, it's not a risk assessment from a safety standpoint, but it talks about these risk factors from the application standpoint. You mentioned two of them, cycle time and payload. The third one is yep. reach. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Too, too often, uh, and what I've always said for, for years and years and years is um, – don't push the robot in your first analysis beyond 70% of its maximum speed or 70% of its maximum payload or 70% of its maximum reach because early in a project, you don't know what you're going to face before you're done. And that gripper may wind up weighing just a little bit more than you thought. Um, You know, the pallets may be a little bit bigger than you thought. And if that's the case and you're quite too close to the edge, you're going to have a problem. So anyway, if anybody would like that scorecard, just uh, you can email to the address that Danielle will give us at the end. Um, guys, let's talk about some let's talk about some applications that did not go well, and then we're going to come back and talk about some that went really well. Joe, can you kind of give us a, a run through of an example application that just never quite got off the ground? I can, and you know, without getting into every little detail. Um, you know, of, of the project, it's a bigger picture of the issues that, you know, were created um, was that I call it scope creep. So actually at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about making sure the project scope is well-defined um, and the, the tasks that, you know, we want the robots to perform are well-defined. You know, it starts with, hey, I want, you know, the robot to drive these five screws into this part. Um, that's what we want to start with. Then we get a robot in, and it starts to turn into, hey, let's let's pick this part out of the box and put it there, then put the screws in. Hey, let's put a bead of glue down and then put the screws in, all with the same robot, all in the same cell. And you start to – what happens is you start trying to add more end-of-arm tools to the robot. You're starting to add to the cycle time, and you're really starting to get outside of, again, the original scope of what we wanted the robot to do. So in this case, yep. it's kind of making sure that we help that end customer, um, you know, manage that at least initial expectation. Say, get one of the processes working well, 
We just talked about how we are able to operate this robot next to your worker, let the worker continue to handle the other, you know, future goals for the robot, get the robot working well, doing its initially intended process, and then maybe you can start to build on that as you get more experience. So, you that's know, we, not, uh, and that's not even cobot specific. That's like right. automation project management 101. Right. And that, that's where I, I have seen challenges arise is when we have that scope creep and we get excited, rightfully so, for getting a robot and we're going to have it do all these different five, right. six tasks. Let's, let's focus on one, one successful task out of the gate, and then if you have the experience, you can build off of that. That's a, that's Brian, a great what point, do you, what do you see? Do you see similar? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see something similar. And to build just a little bit more off of uh... – off of what Joe mentioned, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to get bogged down in that I want it to do more. That's going to help me to get my ROI. It's going to be more productive. But the fact of the matter is, if it takes you six or eight months to get it to do the rest of that, you've just, you've just wasted half of the way to your initial ROI you would have already had. So it's really one of those things that we're, we're seeing them wanting to expand and, and do as much as possible because, you know, initially it, it certainly makes sense, right? The more it can do, the better off I'm going to be. Um, but a lot of the times it's going to come at a cost, right? It's going to come at a cost of initial production, initial rollout, um, and, and ultimately could come at a cost of, of the overall cycle time. You know, human robot or human cobot interaction and productivity, I mean, it can be, you know, 60, 70, 80% more effective than just a robot alone. Your, your plant mm-hmm. floor will be running more seamlessly, more smoothly, more consistently uh, when you actually do see some of this, you know, human-cobot uh, interaction, right? And uh, it, it's certainly something to, to keep in mind uh, when, you, when you're going down the path of automating. Dave, what do you see? Similar? What, what have been the big stumbling blocks? The... And it's usually when it's a repeat or multiple of, it's that customer who knows it all, the do-it-yourselfer, who doesn't start the first one right, goes to the second, third, and fourth, and then they're wondering why things are failing or not performing as they would hope. Um, When I first joined UR, um, I ran into that with a customer, and... um, it was simply, hey, we've done everything we needed to do to prep for this, but they really had never deployed, um, let's say, a robot of any form or fashion. Mm-hmm. And as we know on this panel, uh, payload, center of gravity of the tooling, things of that nature are so important to getting the most out of the robot. Um, and, um, you know, the good thing is, you know, UR has a very, very um, user-friendly, although, you know, I hate using that term, but the user-friendly interface to really help people now with how to define payload, how to define center of gravity, um, so that, you know, that truly, but, and and I think you'll touch on it, Joe, it's back to that, when do they get an integrator or outside uh, Mm -hmm. company helping them and when not? 
Yeah, and on that note, Dave, I would also say, you know, re reach out to us at Universal Robots because not all integrators are, are created equal in this. And we will we'll be able to help guide you towards the ones that have the experience in these industries because, you know, we've also seen some projects, I don't want to say go south, but might be bogged down a bit by, you know, maybe not having the right integrator selected for the job. Um, so we're here to help make sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible. Well, one of my observations is is that Universal has really developed a whole different class of integrator in the industry. Um, I like the phrase lean integrator because these are lean companies that I see. Uh, they're, you know, 10 or 15 person shop and they're 5,000 square feet and their overhead is tightly capped and controlled and they turn projects fast. Um, I've been guessing that each of you guys have that in your regions. Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Is there ever a scenario where a big traditional integrator can play? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, 100%. there is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I – Go ahead, go ahead, Jim. No, I was just going to say if you want to elaborate on that. So the answer is yes, and I think in those situations it's, you know, we're, a, we're the cobot. The UR robot would be a part of a much larger, more complex system, and the robot's handling one portion of that. Mm -hmm. um, those those larger integrators who typically take on those larger projects would would be a fit. Um, yeah, and those multi like multi cobot opportunities as yeah. well, where maybe exactly. you are looking to right out of the gate um, automate six different parts of this manufacturing process, and you might need three or four cobots working in harmony to each other and, and then talking to each other so that they know, okay, I'm done with my part, part's coming at you, uh, you do your thing type of deal. So, yeah, definitely some times where, where that can come into play. But if it's a, a single part, single process type assembly fit, you know, there's there's certainly times that we're going to have those, um, you know, more of those lean integrators as uh, Joe Campbell was alluding to um, that are going to be a, a fantastic option to, to get involved right out of the gate. What about what about our distributors? There's uh, you know some competitors speak uh, very poorly of our distributors, and I seem to see many of them doing very successful work, kind of at low level integration. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yes, I would. Yep. Yeah. What what I'm seeing, um, and and this was going to kind of go back to your last question as well is, with that big integrator, I I would always ask. Do you have a service group? Yes. What do they do besides service? Because those guys are usually capable of taking a small project. What we're seeing with many of our partners nowadays are they are creating a separate group to help that, I'll call it seventy-five dollars to $150,000 project. Mm -hmm. right? um, and why are they doing that? Well, they're trying to, to do rapid deployment. That's a term we heard a long time ago, right, Joe? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but they're trying to accelerate that deployment for the customer to be more than just pick up a purchase order, get them a component, and walk away. So, yeah. Yep, yep, good points, good points. Uh, let's talk uh, to kind of close up here. Um, first of all, when we talk about assembly, I thought maybe we had to run through the processes that we see in the assembly world that are common to cobots. Um, we talked about a couple already. Uh, screw driving is, uh, is obvious. 
Uh, Dave, you've actually done a fair amount of uh, nut runner applications. Is that right? Yes. Um, we've done everything from blow feed to the tool to picking from an escapement. Um, and then even some that are in seed assembly, what's uh, really key is um, torquing the bolt. So you've had an operator start it, but then uh, the robot comes in, usually with vision guidance, because if you think about it, on your auto, um, automobile car, your seat, if it's off five or 10 millimeters, I don't think you know it when you go from one car to the next car to the next car. <laughs> so uh, a lot of those are starting to use uh, vision to first find the bolt and then refine the position to actually torque it. We're doing a lot of that work. Uh, Brian, what about insertion? Yeah, clip insertion, insertion, connector insertion, etc. Yep, yep, definitely clip insertion is happening. There's a lot of good stuff with the uh, with the built-in force torque sensor on the on the E-series robot where you can get that force feedback. So when you're doing that type of work, uh, you know our cobots do lend themselves well to being able to provide you with that feedback to know that you've properly inserted uh, a part or clipped something into place. So that's certainly something that we're that we're starting to see more and more of as the cobots are evolving. What about the Spence? Because we, we see a lot of cases where the adhesive technology is advancing so fast, it's it's actually advantageous rather than a mechanical connector. Do you guys see uh, dispense applications regularly? I, I do, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I touched on a little early just, um, you know, dispensing, you know, glue, glue beads, um, whatever sort of adhesive that is. But I, I, I do see that. Um, I do see those dispensers being mounted on cobots and, you know, following the geometry of the parts. Yep. All good. What about inspection? Uh, that's usually close coupled to assembly. Right. Seeing a lot yeah. of flexible, flexible inspection cells as well. Yeah. It really, that's probably um, in the three years here at UR, it has been the uh, fastest growing application that I've seen and probably the quickest ROI of, uh, of deployment. Because most of them, it's the cobot on a stand with a camera or cameras. Um, and it goes back to your point, Joe, about the um, high volume, you know, low mix, if you will, or I'm sorry, the uh, high mix, low volume type applications, right? Um, give you a perfect example, uh, brake calipers. It sounds like it's one for all and all for one, but it's not because these manufacturers are doing, whether it's a truck caliper, a car caliper, um, a police car caliper, though it's a caliper, has different brake pads than, mm. you know, uh, the traditional vehicle. So, um, and, and that also we're seeing connectors being fully seated. So perfect example is on the, uh, one of the truck manufacturers on the chassis, they're doing 26, ins uh, 26 inspections looking for missing components and seated ca uh, cable connectors in uh, 12 seconds. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. All right, so Joe, give us a success story real quick and we'll kind of start to wind it down here. Well, success story, we'll, we'll stay on the inspection side of things. And this, this uh, was a recent application of my area and we're, we're actually 
not using vision inspection in this case, but we're utilizing the uh, the built-in force capabilities of the robot to actually um, uh, inspect that the a cable harness is properly installed. So if it's it's properly connected and it's seated the way it needs to be, the robot will pull to a set force. And if it gets to that force, and of course the the connection doesn't break, we know that's that is a uh, uh, you know a good part. When that when that force does break that connection, then we can flag a fail. So that's something that was um, installed here within the last six months. And there's I think four different inspection points on each each part that we're looking at. Nice. And that that has gone very very well. Brian, what about you? Give us a success story to wrap up here. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, certainly several of them out there, um, you know, to kind of, I mean, if we're, if we're continuing down the inspection route, um, certainly the, the vision-based inspections have been used uh, on multiple occasions. One was after an assembly application um, of, of plastic components where they just ran over the uh, entire part, basically, uh, with a camera to ensure that nothing happened to be cracked or, or, or damaged during any part of the previous steps that went into the uh, final assembly of the part. So it was really kind of a, a final quality control check after the assembly process was uh, was completed just to ensure that the parts were good and then could then be sent on to be uh, packaged and shipped out. So um, there's a lot of good stuff going on in the inspection world. Excellent. All right, guys, this was a very, very good session. Thank you all three very, very much. Um, Danielle, why don't you wrap us up here and bring us home? Yes, I can. Well, Joe, Dave, Brian, and Joe, thank you so much for giving us all your different, uh, your insights into the assembly world and some of the good, the bads, and what could be betters. If you have a specific question about anything we discussed today, you're looking for your next steps in automation, specifically with assembly, or if you'd like that risk calculator that Joe mentioned earlier in the panel, give us an email at ur.com na at universal-robots.com. Other than that, take a look in the event description and you should find a little bit more information. Again, guys, thank you so much. I've been Danielle Marlette with Universal Robots and have a great rest of your day. <laughs>